0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Australia's economy is rebounding strongly, but the Omicron variant, government spending, China's struggles, immigration restrictions, and climate change are clouding the outlook. Hear my discussion about all this and more with the Treasurer of Australia, Josh Frydenberg. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer
1: a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com poweredbyhow powered
0: Welcome to The Exchange, conversations with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, the Asia-Pacific editor of Reuters Breaking Views, which is the global financial commentary arm of Reuters, and I'm coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. For this week's episode, I sat down with the Treasurer of Australia, Josh Frydenberg, less than 24 hours after his mid-year economic and fiscal outlook was published. It is likely to be Frydenberg's last major economic update ahead of an election early next year. There are some encouraging signs, including an unemployment rate that has dipped to 4.6%, and optimistic projections on wage growth, outpacing inflation in a few years. More than 90% of the country is already double vaccinated, with third shots being rolled out. At the same time, Australia's economic relationship with China, a major trading partner, has frayed badly. Australia is also heavily dependent on immigrants to power its economy, and the borders have been closed for nearly two years to protect against COVID-19. Freidenberg's coalition government is moving too slowly on climate change for the country's own business community, and the rapidly spreading Omicron variant will test the government's resolve to make strict lockdowns a thing of the past. Freidenberg makes clear in our chat, however, that he thinks Australia is in a strong position to overcome most, if not all, of these challenges. And stick around for his prediction about the winner of the Australian Open. Give a listen. Good morning, Treasurer.
1: Good morning, Jeff. Nice to be with you.
0: Great to have you. Welcome to everyone tuning in as we kick off our annual predictions tradition at Reuters Breaking Views, where we gaze into our crystal balls and try to define what to expect for the coming year. Our theme for 2022 is a world in transition. We have a lot of ground to cover in a short time with the Treasurer. But before we dive in, I wanna start by saying that Reuters' breaking views would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Treasurer, let's begin with your mid-year budget outlook, which was published yesterday. Uh, There are some encouraging figures in there as well as some concerning ones. But given how quickly the Omicron variant is spreading, And considering the restrictions on movement and travel that many countries are starting to impose again, how confident are you in uh, any of these economic forecasts?
1: Well, these forecasts, Jeff, have been based on the best medical advice available to Treasury. And the early signs from the Omicron variant is that while it's highly transmissible, it's perhaps less severe than other variants and that the uh, vaccine, which has been rolled out to around ninety percent of our eligible population in Australia is an effective defence. So too are the treatments. So we have an upside and a downside scenario in those numbers that were released yesterday. But overall, the picture is of a growing Australian economy. We're looking at four and a quarter percent GDP growth for next calendar year. Uh, we're looking at uh, household consumption that's going to be around five and a half percent. Uh, We're looking at business investment that's up 16% this year and next is the expectation, the strongest since the mining boom. And we've also seen unemployment come down yesterday to 4.6% with the biggest monthly job creation on record at 366,000 new jobs over the month of November. So we're seeing a very strong bounce back in the labour market, which will drive a better budget outcome as well.
0: I mean, you have messaged this idea nationally about the vaccines and about no more lockdowns and sticking to the plan. At what point, though, do you, do you, have, to, do you have to reassess?
1: Well, we believe that uh, you can uh, live in a COVID-safe way with your freedoms back and without lockdowns. Now, obviously, Australia did see, in particularly the southern states, extended lockdowns, as other countries have had as well. We very much want to put that behind us, and that's why it's so pleasing to see the high vaccination rates. Now, we've also rolled out one of the first countries to do so a population-wide booster program, and those boosters are going to provide an extra layer of defence. Now, there's a five-month period between having your second dose and then having your booster shot. We've also made the vaccines available To children as young as five, and that will start rolling out early in the new year. So I'm confident the combination of our high vaccination rates, we have one of the lowest mortality rates from COVID in the world, and our strong economic recovery points to a a very um, optimistic future next year.
0: I think that's right. I, I wonder though, what have you learned over the last two years of managing this pandemic that has changed how you would approach things if things were to get worse again? What would you do differently? you know in the, in the
1: coming year? Well obviously there's been unprecedented level of coordination between government policy makers and health officials and I think that served Australia well for example we closed our borders our international borders early on last year that came at an economic cost but it also meant that we were able to, um, to keep the virus under co- relative control. We did have extended lockdowns in in the state of Victoria and then more recently in New South Wales, but many of the states actually uh, went through the COVID pandemic without having to go into extended lockdowns. So I think that close working relationship has served us well and I think that's one of the lessons to take forward.
0: On the subject of those closed borders, I mean even before the pandemic your government cut the annual immigration limit in Australia from 190,000 to 160,000. Of course over the past few years it's been virtually no immigration, you have net emigration. in fact, which stands to have quite a big impact on many parts of the economy for years to come. Are you prepared to lift those caps again to reverse some of that damage?
1: Well, you're right to point to the importance of population as a, an ingredient in economic growth. Indeed, the three Ps, the participation of the workforce, the population and the productivity are uh, drivers of, of greater economic growth we did see population growth go to its lowest level in over a century in australia and you're right net overseas migration actually went negative as more people left the country than came to the country but we've now lifted the pause on the international borders so we're taking international students we're taking skilled workers restarted the humanitarian program and australia has a great tradition of welcoming migrants we're a strong multicultural and diverse society so What we said in yesterday's numbers, that would be an extra 120,000 people coming into Australia than what was forecast as recently as May this year, as a result of the borders reopening around six months earlier earlier than what was forecast in May.
0: I mean, your own agency released a study last week with findings that migrants actually contribute significantly more to federal and state budgets than the general population over their lifetimes. Um, and tend to have better employment outcomes too. Is it, isn't there a pretty strong economic case for trying to make up some of that lost ground on immigration?
1: Well, you can see in the numbers that net overseas migration, which takes into account skilled workers and others, people are staying longer periods of time in Australia, it's over 200,000 um, in the coming years. So um, we are going to see numbers come back, and that is a function of our success in, in getting vaccination rates in place and, and ensuring that we maintain integrity around our borders. So I think there's a good story to tell on the population side.
0: All right. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about inflation as well, because interestingly, there does not seem to be a lot of concern about it here in Australia, either from you or, or from the RBA, frankly. And while it has largely been confined to house prices and petrol here, how realistic is it to think that Australia will be immune from the rising prices that are being experienced in other parts of the world? Well,
1: we are keeping a close watch on inflation and it is more persistent than earlier thought. And the headline inflation numbers is at 3%. Um, the underlying inflation uh, is at around 2.1%. And that is actually within the target band that the Reserve Bank has established between 2 and 3%. It's the first time it's in that band since 2015. That's not a bad thing. And last year we saw in Australia deflation So we actually had the biggest lift in real wages in a decade last year as, for example, childcare became free during the pandemic and you also saw um, falling petrol prices and the like. Look, one of the key drivers of the more persistent inflation levels is supply-side constraints. And I don't think they're there permanently. What we did see during the height of the pandemic is the composition of, um, of trade change as more people... And moved away from services towards goods because they simply couldn't travel and, and move more frequently. That put some pressure on on the on the port system. That put some pressure uh, with freight costs and that found its way through. At the same time, timber costs have gone up, still fabrication, and you've also seen, for example, semiconductors in short supply, uh, which has meant that your wait for a new motor vehicle is is extended. All those things, I think will wash its way through, Jeff, through the economy in the period ahead. So in yesterday's numbers, we had inflation, for example, over the next three years of being around 2.5%. And so it was consistently there. But of course, no one's got a crystal ball and no one uh, can tell you exactly what it will be.
0: One, one area where we've seen prices come down a bit is uh, is in some commodities, particularly iron ore. Over the past six months or so, China obviously plays a big role in Australia's economy, but it's also a relationship that has deteriorated pretty badly over the past 12, 18 months. How how do you assess the prospects of that relationship for next year?
1: Well, China is a very important economic partner for Australia, and it's mutually beneficial. I think that's an important point to to underscore. We uh, benefit from Chinese students coming to our universities, Chinese tourists coming to our tourist destinations and indeed importing Chinese goods. At the same time, Australian agriculture is the best in the world and our iron ore, our our coal, helps underpin China's economic growth and industrial development. And you can't just replace Australia's iron ore very easily. Yes, there's attempts to, for example, build um, new supplies, uh, new mines uh, and secure new supplies out of Africa, but that's going to take some time and Brazil... Has, has had some of its own challenges on the iron ore front. So I think that trade relationship will continue to be strong, but we have been on the receiving end of economic coercion by China, whether it's in relation to coal exports, wine, barley, and, uh, and our exporters have been very effective in finding new markets for their products, and, and that's to be welcomed. But when it comes to the overall relationship, We'll be clear and consistent. we won't deviate from what's in the national interest and whether that applies to critical infrastructure or uh, whether that and foreign investment or whether that imp- applies to foreign interference or human rights, uh, we'll be pretty clear and consistent where our national interest lies and, and say so as much.
0: I mean, there is a, there is a stated aim of, of, in some ways, trying to contain China. Along those lines, what's the, what's the future, in your eyes, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership in terms of new members? Do you think the United States can or should build something similar without joining?
1: We would obviously love the United States to be part of all those economic partnerships that we have, and our relationship with the United States is, is extremely important. It's, it's based on shared history, shared values, Um, shared interests. And you can actually see uh, that uh, relationship even deepening with the AUKUS arrangement with the United Kingdom and the United States that was recently announced. So the the TPP um, is a multilateral deal and Australia has been very successful in negotiating both multilaterally and bilaterally in trading relationships, whether it's with Japan or with Korea or with India. That we're working on or the UK free trade agreement which has been formalized today or indeed Indonesia which is a very good friend and a critical partner for Australia we've been betting down those trading relationships and creating new markets
0: you know sticking on the subject of China I mean I wonder how how are you factoring in the impact that Chinese policy on balancing climate change goals and economic growth will have on that demand for iron ore and coal Australia? Well,
1: you can see that in our budget update. I mean, we have pretty conservative assumptions when it comes to iron ore prices. We have a price of $55 a tonne free on board. That price is now above that, and we have it on a glide path till, uh, till the June quarter, and that's a bit longer than what we we're initially expecting. Obviously, metallurgical coal and thermal coal are large exports too for Australia, and prices have been uh, much higher for those two commodities than was at budget uh, in May. So there has been some upside on the commodity prices for Australia. Our terms of trade are at a record high and our trade surpluses at a record high. I mean, but of course they
0: have have set some pretty aggressive goals and they seem to be taking some steps back on economic growth or sacrificing a bit in in terms of meeting those climate goals. I mean, that will have an impact, won't it?
1: Yeah, and we're watching the Chinese property market as well uh, pretty closely and... uh, you know, that is always one of the the risks to the global economic outlook as to what happens in China, because there are some challenges there as well.
0: I mean, on the broader subject of climate change, um, the Australian Institute of Company Directors just published a study that found the following, and, and I'm quoting this. They say, the lack of a clear and settled climate change policy at the national level was cited as the single large, the largest barrier to effective climate governance by organizations. And that was from nearly half the respondents. And meanwhile, the Business Council of Australia wants a 50% cut from the 2005 greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, far higher than than your target. This is the business community talking, not climate activists. And they're telling you that they're not getting the leadership and the guidance they feel they need. What do you say to them?
1: Well, Jeff, what I'd say is look at our track record. Emissions are down by more than 20% on 2005 levels. And that is more than in New Zealand or in Canada or in the United States. Um, Many other comparable countries do not have um, such reductions in their emissions based on the 2005 benchmark. Now, we believe that emissions will come down by up to 35% by 2030, and we have committed to net zero by 2050. That was an important initiative by, by the coalition. And I think we're on a steady trajectory towards that goal. Um, We've laid out an emissions investment roadmap that brings $20 billion of government spending on low emission technologies, and it seeks to partner and leverage around $80 billion in total spending. So one in four Australian households have solar panels on their roofs. That's the highest on a per capita basis anywhere in the world. We've seen in recent years some $35 billion spent on renewable energy technologies. Um, That's more on a per capita basis than we see in many other comparable countries so we've actually got a good story to tell and now that we've committed to net zero by 2050 i think there's some more certainty there for, for those businesses you talked about
0: I mean, i think the world has really come to a consensus that the next 10 years are really critical you know there's plenty of technology available you've you've talked about some of it um, in terms of solar panels but there's a lot more in terms of renewables that can bring jobs and economic growth you've pushed most of the action out beyond 2030 65% you know, of it, why not go faster?
1: Well, Jeff, we we are moving on the technology uh, front. Um, we're heavily invested in hydrogen, including international partnerships with other countries. We're investing in carbon capture and storage, soil carbon, uh, getting the, the cost of solar cell technology down aggressively. I mean, it might surprise your viewers to know that around 90% of solar cell technology used in commercial operations had their origins in Australian research by our leading universities. Um, So we've actually been at the forefront of a lot of these reforms and will continue to be. So we've got some massive pumped hydro facilities, for example, one's called Snowy 2.0, which is creating more than 5,000 jobs in New South Wales. And the goal of that is to provide a big battery for the east coast of Australia I used to be the Energy and the Environment Minister. Maybe that's why I'm speaking with a bit of passion about this e- subject. But again, I think we've got a strong track record of reducing emissions, but at the same time reducing electricity prices, which are critical to households and to business competitiveness.
0: Have you given any fresh thought about whether uh, into whether Australia needs a carbon price as industry has been calling for?
1: Well, we've made very clear. Our approach is technology, not taxes. Not sure
0: they're mutually exclusive, but we can leave leave that one there. This year, you went pretty hard and successfully against uh, Google and Facebook over paying for news. But big tech obviously continues to be a concern around the world. Are there other aspects of their dominance that you plan to target in 2022?
1: Well, obviously, that was a big battle that we had. And in fact, Australia was shut down for a day, if you remember. Um, by Facebook, which created a few uh, shockwaves across the, uh, across the community. But at the end of the day, I had very good uh, negotiations with the heads of Google and Facebook. Uh, we focused on what was a mutually beneficial outcome that sees them paying for the generation of original content. Uh, and that's helped put our traditional news media businesses on a more sustainable footing. And I think that's very Important. So our focus has been on also holding these uh, digital giants to account for uh, for some of the bullying um, and some of the uh, the material that gets posted online. Um, but we live in a a world of digital disruption, and it's affecting everything from our payment systems to uh, to the way we consume our media, um, to the way we shop, um, to the way we to the way we meet. Meet like you know the Zoom meeting replacing. Hopping on an airplane and, and 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 going into state for a board meeting, um, there are lots of changes that are occurring as a result of digital disruption and and getting Facebook and, and Google and others to pay the traditional news media businesses for generating original content. I think was a very important development and reform.
0: Are there other areas that that you are concerned about with 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 their, oh, well, their well, obvious well, dominance?
1: Obviously, we're we're, we're focusing on. Um, some other areas where there may be uh, need for actions, and we're working those through.
0: Okay, Uh, um, The the, the banks here will obviously be a key component to any sustained economic recovery. Have they done enough in the wake of the the pretty bruising Royal Commission to shore up themselves and the the financial system here?
1: Well, I think that the Royal Commission was certainly a wake-up call for the financial system more broadly. It brought a lot of scrutiny to the roles of not just the commercial institutions, but also the regulators, um, the conduct regulators, the prudential regulators. Uh, And we have gone ahead and implemented those reforms uh, from uh, from the Royal Commission. With respect to the banks, um, they have played, I think, a very constructive role through this pandemic. We uh, worked with the banks and the prudential regulator uh, in terms of the treatment of capital to ensure that some $250 billion worth of loans could have a pause put on repayments, both interest and principal. That was very helpful during the height of the pandemic in removing one of those concerns for, for businesses and for households. And it was, it was part of the efforts that we made to put the economy into hibernation effectively while people followed the, the, the health restrictions.
0: Okay. I mean, obviously, part of, the, part of what's happened with the banks as well is that the low rates have, uh, have enabled a lot of home buying. Prices have gone up pretty astronomically here in Australia. Uh, it's a tough market, especially for new buyers. How concerned are you about this, about where prices are?
1: Well, Jeff, this is not an Australian-only phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon off the back of historically low interest rates. And we have seen capital city house prices increase in parts of Australia, by more than 20%, and even higher still in some regional areas, as people move out of the cities in, into into the regions. Um, at the same time, we've seen over the last year around 170,000 first home buyers come into the market, whereas the 10-year average has been 100,000. So we've actually seen a growth in the number of first home buyers getting into the market and capitalising on those low interest rates and some of the government support programs that have been put in place, like HomeBuilder.
0: That's um, why you've, you've you've obviously uh, launched a new policy initiative in terms of digital payments, the financial infrastructure yes. of the country. I mean, a one sort of small component of that, but I'm sort of curious about it. is it. A, do you think a central bank digital currency is a good idea for Australia?
1: Well, that's what we're looking at, the feasibility of a, a central bank-backed digital currency. Obviously, other countries, some smaller ones, and China has been leading, leaning into that. and uh, and, you know, gone are the days of, of checks and cash is in decline. And now we live in a world of digital wallets, digital currencies, and buy now, pay later. And, you know, there's more than 5 million buy now, pay later accounts in Australia. Around half of Australian consumers are using their phone for the payment system. More than 800,000 people have owned a digital um, a, a cryptocurrency. And that's increased by more than 60% over the course of the last Um, So it's clearly um, shaping and driving the the payment system in a very new way. And we need to have a regulatory framework that's fit for purpose. And that requires financial services licenses, for example, to those businesses that are buying and selling cryptocurrencies and and, and investigating ourselves the feasibility of a centrally backed um, digital currency.
0: No, we'll keep an eye on that. I'll wrap things up a bit here, but I wondered, in big picture terms, what have you learned um, about the tension between being sort of reactive in a crisis and then pursuing longer-term goals a- as a leader?
1: Look, it's a very important question um, because it does underscore the rapid nature of decision making that has been required in this crisis, without any rule book, and uh, and that has meant you know taking best advice from all the areas where it was available but also in an unprecedented way we call it a team Australia moment bringing together governments federal and state regulators as well as businesses big and small and that combination of the private and the public sectors working together i think has served australia very well um, before we announced the biggest uh, economic support program this country's ever seen called JobKeeper which came in at around $90 billion, was effectively a wage subsidy across the economy. I rang um, John Howard, who was Australia's second longest serving prime minister, someone who I'd previously worked for. And I said to him what I was about to do with the JobKeeper program. And he said to me, he said, Josh, at times of national crises, there are no ideological constraints. And for me, that was a very much a green light that we were on the right track and it was that sort of practical approach that I think under Scott Morrison has served Australia very well. All right, last
0: question. This is, of course, a predictions event. So I do have to pose one tough final question for you. I have to get a prediction out of you. We know you're a big tennis fan. Uh, who are you predicting to win the Australian Open?
1: Ash Barty, of course, Jeff. You know, It would be great to see an Australian hold that couple off. She's been the world's number one tennis player over the course of the last year. And uh, it would be great to see her win at home.
0: All right. Listen, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks My to everyone pleasure.
1: for watching. Thank you.
0: My thanks to the treasurer and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Schum and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes of The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Acast. Also, check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, saying goodbye. Until next time, from Melbourne.